It's another show of BuddyCast with my buddy here, Doby Maxwell. We apologize. Doby doesn't have the internet at the moment. He's in the process of moving, so but you're going to hear him. So welcome to the show, Doby. Glad to have well, you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. I've got my Daisy Wheel printer and my uh, Commodore 64 computer. I know I'm completely out of cyberspace, but the things that I'm going to talk about today about comedy are timeless. So I'm glad anybody listening here is listening because you're going to get some information uh, more than you bargain for. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you, how'd you first get started in comedy? Well, uh, it, it was a long way around. I was always funny in school, and I think a lot of people start out that way. And there was a show when I grew up, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's called Hollywood Squares. Do you know that show? I think I've heard of it, but I don't they've think i They've had many different, different angles of it. There's, there's nine celebrities, okay, like a tic-tac-toe mm -hmm. board. And it was a game show, and the, the contestants would ask, you know, they'd pick a, a star, a celebrity, and the, the, the host would ask a question. And then the celebrity many times would have a funny answer. And I, I would do the funny answers in school when the teacher would ask a question. And I would be like Hollywood Squares. Off the top of my head, I'd come up with a funny answer and make the class laugh. And when I first heard those laughs, it was, it was like medicine. It was like a drug. And the teacher would get so mad at me. She said, you're smart. You know the answers. Why do you have to keep going for the laughs? And I just, I could not do that. Then years later, I found out that there were writers that wrote those funny answers for the celebrities. And I was doing it off the top of my head by myself. So I'm thinking there was a little bit of aptitude there. So I wanted to be a baseball player. This has a point. I'm coming to a point here. Mm -hmm. I, I was a baseball player and I had a trial with the Kansas City Royals as a left-handed pitcher. And in baseball, a left-handed pitcher is one of the most, if not the most, in-demand position that there is in all of baseball. And I got a second look, but I didn't get signed. And I was about 19 years old and I was just crushed. What am I going to do now? I spent my entire life at that point wanting to be a baseball player. So there was an ad in the, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in Milwaukee in the newspaper, which they don't have newspapers anymore, but back then they did. And it said, open mic comedy show, live stand-up comedy. I think, well, I like comedy. I'll go see a show. Maybe it'll take my mind off my depression. And I, like an idiot, thought, well, there's going to be about two or 3,000 people there. It's going to be a big thing. And I got to this little, it was a nightclub, a bar, and there were seven people there. I counted seven people. I thought, oh, this can't be it. So I went back out to the parking lot. I looked at the ad. Oh, yeah, it says open mic. This is the night. And I walked back in and the host was on stage. He said, we got seven of the funniest comedians in Milwaukee. Today. Turns out I was the only one besides the bartender that wasn't a comedian. So I got it. That's how I got started in comedy. At the very end of the night, these guys were terrible. I thought I could do that. that I'm funnier than those guys. There was about 40, 50 people at the end of the night. And they said, if anybody wants to come up and try, this is open mic, which means anybody can come up and try comedy. So I went up on stage. I thought I, I could be this. And I was, I was horrible. I was worse than them. I'm thinking, oh, and I realized in the first 30 seconds, this is a lot harder than it looks, just like anything else is. And I ad-libbed the line. It was, uh, it just, I said something off the top of my head. And again, it got a big laugh. And that was like that first shot of heroin. If I wouldn't have got that laugh on that night, I wouldn't have come back. And from that day forward, I've dedicated my life to stand-up comedy. That's a long answer, but that's the truth. How did I get started? That's how I got started. Awesome. That's a great inspirational story. Now, um, let's talk about your, speaking of inspiration, let's talk about your inspiration for comedy. Where do you find, like, inspiration for new jokes? Where do you find, um, like, inspiration for new material? Well, you know, I, I tell people, look around. You know, if, if you got some natural funny, if you can't look at five minutes of the world, especially the way it is now, how it has devolved into basically a zoo, then, then you don't belong in the comedy business. There is everything is wrong with everything. If you can't find something to make jokes about, I, I think there's very some serious uh, issues there. And I, people always, I used to walk around with 
with a, again, I know I'm old, but I put a, a pad in the paper. Now probably people would rock around with their phone and, and text things. But I look, rock, okay, what's funny about McDonald's? What's funny about the bus stop? What's funny about uh, the gas station? And then it's, it, and I learned quickly, and this is a tip, it's got to come from within. I had it all backwards. You know, what's inside of me? What, what can me and my character and my personality find funny about going to all those places rather than just looking at the places and say, what's funny about that? And it took a lot of years to get to that point. So there's a little tip right off the bat that hopefully will help you put things in perspective a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about your writing process. Okay. What are some of the tips that you have on writing jokes? Well, I think uh, there is – I've come up with a – an acronym and it, it just it worked out that way uh c-r-a-p crap and it just happened to work out that way collect review assemble present so if you're gonna think okay i want to i think there's a funny bit on i don't know baseball uh think of every term that you can think of about baseball uh every, every team name just words terms phrases everything just write it down and don't edit collect it all then you assemble okay well what what's funny there's a game there's a team there's that i play little league baseball that i go to a game with my dad that i catch a foul ball all the things that you associate with baseball so it's collect review assemble try to put the jokes together and then present take them on the stage and that's basically a very very you know broad overview but i think you, you have to start somewhere and that's just collecting all the information people say you know did you just make things up off the top of your head all the time there might be an inspiration for one line, but to really write a routine, it takes a long time to do that and to put it together on stage, you know, 50 or 100 times. And now you're finding out in your own journey, stage time is harder to get than it ever has been before, and especially quality stage time. We never we never did comedy in front of other comedians. You have to do it in front of strangers and strangers don't necessarily come to open mic. So how does a new comedian get stage time? It's tough. I, I don't know how you do it. I mean, in your town, where are you located? What's your town? I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania. Okay, I performed in Erie, Pennsylvania. I think it's good now. There's a club. Is it Juniors there? Yeah. Do you get do you get regular stage time there? Um, I've done open mics there. I'm working okay. my way in with the new owner. They just transitioned ownership. Well, that's another part of it too that people don't realize. You know, you get in with an owner or a booker, and things are going really well, and then it changes, and you're nowhere, and you got to start all over again. And sometimes you might mm -hmm. not work a certain venue for weeks or months or even years, and that's all why it takes so long. People say, "Well, you're doing it for so long. Well, how come? How come you're not famous?" Well, because things like that happen. There's so many things you don't think about when you start out, and that's one of them. So now, okay, let me ask you this: When you started out, did you have an idea what what you wanted to do with comedy? What was your What was your picture in your head? Well, for one, I'm a little person, so I wanted okay. to base it a little off of that. I always say, like, you know, people laugh at me no matter if I'm on stage or not. So why not get them to laugh with me? And well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Please continue. I'm yeah. sorry. So then I develop jokes off of my perspective, like funny interactions or just things that I see. Like my hit joke right now is that I'm the hide-and-go-seek champion of AVPA. Huh, Undefeated in my neighborhood. Because one time they even awarded me the Amber Alert. Huh. It's funny. Now, here's a good thing mm -hmm. about that. Number one, that's very unique to you. No one's going to steal it from you. It's a unique persona. And if you can get that, you've got a, such an advantage over 99.9% .9 of other comedians. And, and kudos for you for, for doing that and taking advantage of it. So you're on the right track. Good. I'm glad to hear this. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So do, you do you remember your first show by chance? Uh, my first open mic, yes. Uh, uh, what about that, your first? What about your first paid show? 
Oh, absolutely remember that. I think every comedian remembers that. Did, did, have you had yours yet? I have. You can ask them what you got. I always set the stage. Mm -hmm. the, of the bar. What was it? How much did you get paid? I think I got paid around ten to twenty dollars because it wasn't that great. it wasn't that popular of a show, but it was well, um, it was like six other comedians there too. So funny how that works. My experience was very similar. I got ten dollars for ten minutes, and I was mm -hmm. absolutely horrible. That open mic that I told you about that was at a, a jazz club. They had a jazz music bands and, and, and singers and stuff uh, six days a week and comedy was on Mondays when they were closed basically so they open up to do the comedy shows and there was a place uh, down the street which a rock club which uh, eventually became a funny bone comedy club and that was uh, they had put, called the Sunday funnies and they had the, the paid people in the area at the time and I had 10 minutes for $10 and I went to 57 open mics on that Monday 50 it's a year and what almost two months before the guy said okay I think you're ready finally for your first paid spot and I went up there and I ate cheese off the big wheel. I was absolutely horrible. I thought they were going to take the $10 back. I was that bad. And years later, I apologized to that guy that booked it. And I said, you know what? I, I really am sorry that I was horrible that first night. He goes, hey, you know what? I knew you had potential. It wasn't the greatest night. It wasn't as bad as you thought. And there's another lesson I want to pass along to your listeners. Uh, when, when you kill in your mind, it's usually not as good as you think it is. And when you eat it and you do horrible in your mind, it's usually not as bad as you think it is. It's somewhere in the middle, and you have to learn to, to you know, have an even keel, which is really, really hard because we've all had bad shows, and that ride home can be the longest ride of your life, and it's mm -hmm. just horrible. I mean, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with bombing, but boy, it sure it can leave a, it can leave a, a nasty scar. Mm -hmm. Most definitely, I've had those shows where I walked off stage and went, "Yeah, that could have gone better." And then on yeah. the way home, just the entire time, you moron! What are you doing up there? And you, you it's worse, you replay it in your head so many times. It's like, okay, it's over. The crowd has forgotten about it five seconds after you get off stage. But we remember yeah. it for the until the next time we get on stage. And if it's not, you know, the next night or the next week, that can really sting and linger for a long time. The worst part is watching yourself on film afterwards if you get your set recorded. Boy, That's there's another Go ahead. That to me is like just watching myself and just going, oh, dear Lord. Yeah, you got to have a, hel a healthy self-esteem before you do that. But now mm -hmm. in today's day and age, and I, I, again, I'm going to keep making old references only because I've been doing it for such a long time. Mm -hmm. there were, there were, it really took effort to record yourself back when I started. You have to literally get a camera. Now anybody can do it on their phone or you know, at least audio, if not video. There's really no excuse for not recording yourself every time you go on stage. And there are many reasons for that. You don't have to necessarily watch the bad ones, but unfortunately, those are the ones where you learn the most. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, to have a good set, it's fun, but you don't necessarily learn a lot. When it when it really goes wrong, that's that's when you get some education. But also, I think you, you can maybe ad lib something, or someone in the crowd will shout something up, or something happens that you can really build something off of. And you don't necessarily remember it because there are so many things to think about when you're on stage. It's very very wise and smart for everybody to record every show that you ever do. No, no excuse not to nowadays. Everybody's got a phone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that brings me to the next question. Speaking of like changes nowadays, you know, you mentioned like changes throughout history. Like nowadays, everyone has a phone. Nowadays, everyone's writing on a phone. What are some changes you see coming? You know, we've been hit with this pandemic. We've been hit with, what are some changes you see coming to comedy clubs because of this pandemic? Well, I thought this for years, and I, it's, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Microphones will be a thing of the past. 
just for technology purposes. It'll be like the, the, the drive-through fast food, you know, the he- headset kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike Technique was such a big part of comedy when I came up. And I still teach my, my students, you know, leave the mic in the stand, at least when you're starting out, because there's just there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And there's focus when you leave the mic in the stand and the audience can focus on you. You can focus on your material. That's all going to be a thing in the, of the past. And I think a lot sooner than later, just the, the technology of it all. And like you said, you know, with the, with the pandemic happening, uh, comedy is, is an intimate form. I mean, there could be great shows in front of 40 or 50 people if they're all jammed together in a small room and everybody's near the stage. And that, that is how I came up in a smaller comedy clubs. And it really is, it's, it's electric. There's an energy in there that you can't have on zoom and you can't have it when there's social distancing and people are wearing masks. And I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't think anybody does. This is unprecedented. You know, I mean, I, I could say I could make predictions, but I don't know. I don't know if comedy will survive this. Because when I when I came up, you said you've been in it two years. Can I ask mm-hmm. how old you are? Can I ask how old you are? You, I'm 25. You're 25. Okay, I was the same thing. I was, you know, by 22 or 23, I was doing comedy full time. I could work six nights a week, and there were enough gigs around the country where I wasn't getting rich, but I could get by. And I could get on stage six nights a week, and I could work with people like Jeff Foxworthy and Drew Carey, and they weren't stars then but they were ahead of me in the game. So now people your age, you can't work every night, number one. Number two, there's gonna be a different uh, whole dynamic of people in the clubs. I don't know where stand-up comedy is gonna evolve. Do you have a prediction? What do you think? You're you're in the closer to to the beginning than I was. I honestly think there's gonna be a lot of the guidelines followed in the beginning, like social distancing. I think clubs are gonna be a lot smaller, you know, like tickets are gonna be much more scarce, but maybe that will add more shows, you know? Maybe that will add more like chances for comedians. Like maybe there'll be three shows a night or something like that. Or well, that'll be really great for you because it'll give you more stage time in front of exactly. You, know, you need that quality stage time to build and grow. I've been doing it thirty plus years. I still grow and learn. I, I've I've gotten better probably in, better in the last five years than I have in the previous twenty five. And mm-hmm. I always had a natural ability. I mean, I, I, some people just they have a natural flair for it. I had much more of a natural flair for comedy than I did baseball, but baseball was what I really wanted. It is amazing to me how many people, not just in comedy, but in life, that you really want something, this one thing, but your skill set might not necessarily be acclimated to that. And I think just being funny for a comedian is not nearly enough. You have to have persistence. You have to really want to do it. Uh, I hate to say it, you probably should have a, a bad childhood something that you really want to overcome and prove yourself because he can get really brutal and ugly out there and you know to, to stay in some crappy hotel a thousand miles from your house and, and you get a couple of bad shows and you're on the road it's a very lonely business you have to be comfortable with yourself but a lot of people aren't you know that's why you know whatever whatever malady whatever substance abuse or alcoholism or whatever it is it'll find you on the road the road is is constant. You know, you have good shows, you feel great. And some people say, when I had a good show, I partied. When I had a bad show, I drank. Well, you know, a lot, a lot of so that that's nothing that everybody ever thinks about starting out. And that's why I want to, you know, tell the comedians that yeah, you, you go in there, you think yes, I'm funny, I really want to do this. That is but one percent of what it's like to be a, a comedian. Now the pandemic comes in, there's less gigs. How are you going to feed yourself, much less a family? Are, are you are you married? I'm not. I've got a girlfriend, though. But. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's it's fine if you do or you don't. But even if you're like a, like a sports player, there's an off season where you can be home, or if you're a teacher, there's a summer vacation you can spend time with your family. As a touring comedian, you're gone all the time. 
So even if you have a good relationship, you're always apart. If you have a bad relationship, you're always apart. That's got nothing to do with being funny, but it's got it's, it's your lifestyle, your mindset. Some people are more needy than others. They need people around them. Some people are more independent. It's very individual. And these are, I mean, these are layers that people feel. And it's like, God, I never thought about this. No, I didn't either. Nobody does until you get out there and thinking, oh, this is how it is. So it's good to have somebody that's been through the wars like me to at least ask questions from. So I'll shut up now. I'll let you ask some questions. But I appreciate you having me on because I just want to send a light to younger comedians coming up the ranks. Yeah, absolutely. It's what it's the bigger comedians like you that we look up to, you know, it's the bigger people that, you know, we're, we want to be where you are right now. Like we well, want to be where. That's yeah. the thing. When, when I, I would talk to comedians when they, when I that, when I was in your shoes, talking to the comedians that have been around, and they were bitter and mean and nasty because it, it does it beats you down. So I think there needs to be some kind of community, and, and some kind of place to go just to vent a little bit. So this kudos yeah. to you for setting this up. Go, thank you, yeah. thank you. Let me ask you this: Speaking of community, on Facebook you have the Facebook page called the Maxwell Method of Stand Up Comedy. Yes, sir. What inspired you to create something like this, and what are the results that you've seen from it? Well, uh, I, I'll try to make it as short as possible. When I started out, there weren't a whole lot of comedians that would that would talk to me. I, w- I happened <laughs> to be the youngest one when I came around, and there was by, by a couple of years, so there wasn't really any peers that were brand new like me. And, and I know this sounds hard to believe for comedians coming up today. There weren't a whole lot of comedians. I mean, Milwaukee's got more than a million people. It's probably bigger than Erie, uh, and we had maybe... 10 or 12 comedians and everybody knew each other. So if somebody new came around, you knew that person. Now you go to an open mic, you see 50 brand new newbies that you've never seen before. It's a completely different scene. And, and I would talk to them and they would just kind of blow me off and pretty much, you know, find out yourself. And I thought, well, that's not very cool. I don't know if they were insecure that I was a threat to them, but I was vowed. I said, if I ever came up the ranks and somebody new was coming along, I would offer them help and guidance just because it's the, it's the right thing to do. I'm not insecure enough to think, you know, you know, if someone's going to be a big star, they're going to be a big star, whether you help them or not, why not help them? It's just as easy. So it, it became uh, a Facebook group. I thought, well, I'll start it. I'll see if anybody is interested. Maybe I can get 50 or a hundred people and I can help them just with the knowledge that I already have in my head. As it turned out, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, we've got uh, more than 4,000, I think it's 4,300 now we're up to something like that. Pretty close. Ooh. And people all over the world. I mean, we've got uh, England and Australia and Ireland and Africa and Canada. And, and it really is a, a thrill for me to be able to. And it's not only me. There's a lot of really great comedians that have been around a long time that if someone like yourself will come along and ask a question, uh, sincerely wanting to know, there will be some some people that will a, a very high quality that will answer it sincerely. I think just because it's the whole thing of paying it forward. And, and hopefully when you get to be a big star and I'm driving your limo somewhere, and, I, and you say, okay, now I'm going to pay it forward just like Dobie paid it forward to me. It's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned earlier, like, you've worked with comedy, like big star comedians before mm-hmm. they were big stars. Who are some, of the, who are some notable com- comedians that you've worked with throughout your career? Well, uh, it's funny because if, if you come up, come up the ranks and, and you have comedians on your scene right now in Erie, and mm-hmm. so I don't know if there's 10, 20, 50 comedians and you pick now say, OK, well, I think he or she has a really good chance to be a star. That's probably not going to be the one that's going to make it because making it, number one, is different from everybody. And number two, there are so many variables and luck is definitely a factor. Drew Carey was somebody that he wasn't even a, a headliner when I started. He was a feature act and I was an opening act. And he came through Milwaukee. He was from Cleveland. 
and it's just a really nice guy. We went out to lunch countless times, and we just got along really well. He was a nice guy. Funny, you know, we were friends. He told me one time, he said, you know what, if I read this, I'm not going to know what to do because I like to sit in a diner and read the newspaper and sip my coffee and hang out. And he goes, if I get famous, I won't be able to do that. Then I heard later that he, he got famous and he would have a whole section of a diner in L.A., like, you know, cordoned off. And if somebody wanted to go get an autograph or talk to him or something, he'd talk to them. But he just really, he liked to be just a normal, regular guy. And Jeff Foxworthy was somebody that came up. You know, I remember I, I worked with him in Detroit, Michigan. And he said, hey, kid, you know, you, you're funny. I, I think I got this idea it's going to make a million dollars. And I want you to be in on the ground floor. You can write jokes for me. And I want to buy you lunch tomorrow. And I want to tell you uh, what my idea is. And I, I was probably your age, 25. And I thought, okay, I heard buy you lunch. That's all I heard. Okay, this idiot wants to buy me lunch. Let's see where it goes. So he's, I showed up the next day, and I had my hamburger in my hand, and I'm eating it. And he said, okay, here's my idea. You might be a redneck if, and then I do jokes about it. And I told him in my 25-year-old wisdom, Jeff, I like you, man. That is the dumbest idea I have ever heard in my entire life. And he, his eyes got big. He goes, why do you say that? I said, because that's a bit that... Uh, an eight-year-old kid could write that. If the American public buys something as stupid as that, then, then Mary Kay should give you the biggest pink Cadillac she's got because you just pulled off. And he said, I, I, I'm going to make a million dollars with this idea. And I got right in his face. I said, a million dollars, a million dollars. I said, you're a good guy, man, but I'm, I'm out. And so, you know, as it turns out, Jeff Foxworthy is the highest paid comedy entertainer of our time. And I'm talking to you on a podcast in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I, I, <laughs> and I'm happy to be. I'm happy to be doing it. But it was oh, absolutely. We're happy to have you, man. Well, but but the thing is, you know, Jeff, he he saw a bigger picture that I didn't see in my 25 year old wisdom. And there's nothing wrong with being 25 years old. But I think people like yourself that's only been around for a couple of years, you only, you realize that uh, you know the world gets bigger as you do. You only see like first or second grade when you're there. You only see it on first or second grade. Then you get to junior high and high school. And if you go to college, the world is a lot bigger. And I think that a comedian starting out today needs to not be as naive as I was and, and know that, you know, there's a lot more than you just thinking at your local open mic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, um, wow. Do you have any like famous heckler stories that you would love telling or anything like that? Yeah, there's. Uh, I don't know how much time we have, but I leave the Take all the time you need, sir. I've okay. done this thing for hours. So. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, an infamous. Uh, there's several infamous heckler stories, but one of them that really comes to mind is I was in uh, Kentucky, uh, right on the border of Kentucky and Cincinnati. I don't know if you know the, the geography of that area really mm -hmm. well. But uh, it's, it's Covington, Kentucky is right across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio. And there was a comedy club in a Holiday Inn Hotel in Covington, Kentucky. So it was borderline of redneck hillbillies. And I was trying to be nice. There was a carload of four comedians that came down from Detroit. Detroit to Cincinnati is quite a, quite a drive. And they wanted to audition for this club. And I, I wasn't even working at the club at the time. I, I was coming through town. And I, I offered to host the shows. And these guys came in. They said, well, you know, we're going to do auditions. I said... So the club owner said, okay, one of the four is going to have to host the show. I said, look, I'm in town anyway. I'll host the show. Let the kids go up, and they'll be able to audition for you. Well, that's a very nice thing to do. So these guys walk in, and they were from Kentucky, and they had baseball caps and tattoos and a couple of teeth missing. It's just a bad scene, and they sat right in the front, and they started heckling these new comedians. And I take comedy very seriously, especially for someone that's defenseless. It's like, it's like tipping over a wheelchair 
saying, you know, oh, I beat you up. It's like there's not there's no challenge there. Don't don't do it to open micers. So I got on stage and I can handle myself with anybody. So I started, you know, zapping these guys and they didn't like it very well. So and I said, no, you're not going to talk about these other guys. You want to heckle? You want to heckle somebody? You heckle me. So next thing I knew, a full pitcher of beer came about three inches from my head, and there was one of them. It was kind of come up the stage to rush the stage. Well, that's one of the good things about having a mic stand. So I had the mic stand in a baseball bat position, and I said, I'll cave your skull in if you come another step. But within 30 seconds, the police had come in. And there was a riot. Someone had called the police. This was before cell phones. They went out in the hallway and they called the police. So since I was a comedian on stage, I was the one that got blamed. And I'm now banned in Cincinnati because I was protecting other comedians. They said that I started a riot. People went to jail. The tables were tipped over. It was, you know, it was crazy. So those kind of things happen and they just happen out of the blue. And those are the stories you tell for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that, but you know. No, it's okay. I mean, it's it's a funny story now. It's not necessarily funny when it happens. But I was, and here, here's the thing, and I think a lot of a lot of comedians don't really realize this. Uh, as we're recording this, it happens to be close to Father's Day, and a bad father is a motivation for a lot of entertainers. You know, it could be a distant father that didn't tell. Robin Williams said, "He goes, the only reason I ever got into be performer was to be, get the approval of my father, and I never got it." His dad was a big auto executive. I think he was born in either Chicago or Detroit, but he lived in Detroit for a long time. And, and Robin Williams got to be a big star, but his father never accepted him. I don't know what your relationship is with your father. It's none of my business, but a lot of people, uh, just they, they'd have that, that bad relationship. And I, I was taking out the anger I had at my father. My father was a biker. He abandoned my family. My, I was raised by my grandparents. Uh, I had a horrible childhood. And it was, it, it's ripe and prime for comedy. But it's, it's not fun to go through a lifestyle like that. So when I would rip a heckler, I would basically be ripping my father. And people say, oh, you're the best heckler. Guy. You're, you're like Bruce Lee, a ninja warrior. You know, no heckler ever gets the best of you. It wasn't necessarily the heckler. It was my father. And this is way deeper than comedy. It goes, you know, I don't psychological or therapy or whatever you want to call it. But comedy can be that way sometimes. You know, when you have nothing else and comedy is the only thing, you, you, it's very precious to you. So, uh, yeah, I got a lot of heckler stories that I, I would basically defend myself. I don't take bullies well. That's another thing, you know, and bullies, you, you might, you might kick my butt. You might knock my tooth out, but I'm not going to go down, you know, without a fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kudos to you for that. Now you say you're banned in Cincinnati, but there, are there any other places that you love to perform at? Like what are your favorite places to perform in? Boy, it's really weird how it comes across. People ask that question all the time. And sometimes it, it, it really depends on the night. It could be a room of, of, of 30 or 40 people that are really into it. And they could just love you from the first minute you're on stage. And next time you go in front of 2,000 people in a big uh, situation in a, in a theater and, and they could hate you or just you're, you're off. And it doesn't work that way. So any favorite places? I really had a hard time in the South. I'm from the North and Northern Southern comedians or comedy audiences are different. And, and people always ask, you know, is comedy the same everywhere? No. Just got restaurants are different. Uh, I, music is different, and same with comedy. It could be an old versus a young audience, or a, a black versus a white audience, or a Jewish versus a Gentile audience, and a northern versus a southern audience. There's just a, a, a style, a pace. I speak fast. I know that. Well, in the South, they don't speak that fast. First time I ever worked in the South was Nashville, Tennessee, and I've learned to adjust now over the years, but they hated me in Nashville, and I got off stage after my first show, and the club owner just walked up to me, and he just, he just said two words, slow down. They, you're too fast for these people. Just your, your style of speech is, is hard. So, I mean, there are, now I've learned to adjust. 
you know, I've been doing so long. I've, I've played at cruise ships. Cruise ships are different than, than comedy clubs. Colleges are different than that. Corporate events are different than that as well. And it takes a lot of bombing and a lot of trial and error to learn how to adapt to all those audiences. But what I like a comedy club. I really enjoy that. I'm not a big drinker. My I don't drink at all myself. And I think, you know, to entertain drunks is very, you, you, you're not going to win. You know, you can manage them, but you really have a hard time. I like a soft seat theater. People come out just to, to laugh, to see comedy. About maybe 500 to 1,000 seats. And those can be in any, any city in, in North America. So where do I like to perform? Where people want to laugh. That's my long answer to that. But uh, how about you? What do you? Have you been on the road yet? Where have you performed? Uh, I've performed a little bit in Jamestown, New York. I'm still working through the open mic level, you know? Mm-hmm. Still working my way up. Um, I've done work in Western New York, like small areas and... Mostly, I've got to admit, I'm a homeboy. No, and you that's know? where everybody starts. I get it. And here, Okay, here's an example of something that I had to learn for just, just exactly what you said. Uh, I had a bit about, about snow and winter and snowball fights and I'd, like the snow stomp. I mean, snows were in Erie, I'm sure. And oh, you come yeah. in, you know, and, and you, you stomp all the snow off your boots, blah, blah, blah. When I first went to go on the road, I was an opening act, and you only needed about 15 minutes to, to go out as an opener. Well, I had about 15 minutes, and I was really ranked new. And uh, at the first one of the first road gigs I had was in uh, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Well, I was the opening act, and about seven or eight minutes of my 15 was about winter and snow. Well, it doesn't snow down in, in Columbia, South Carolina. And I, I, I had to adjust. You know, after the second night, I'm thinking, they're not getting this. This is half my act, and, and I didn't even think about it. Well, everybody got it at home. So the thing is, you know, you do, do jokes about Erie and then you get out on the road. Well, these people don't they don't do that here. They don't know what that mm-hmm. is here. And there's a lot of regionalisms and and people eat different foods in different places and have different customs and traditions. And that's why it takes so long for a comedian to, to really hit it, because you, you got to put all those things together and you don't you don't think about it. So Absolutely. hopefully, hopefully in our conversation, you're asking great questions. And I thank you for doing yeah. that. Hopefully I can just give points to anyone that listening to this saying, well, I never thought about that. So if I can help somebody, Absolutely. that's why I'm talking so much. So I'll Absolutely. Up. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. I'm actually going to end on this one note, but stick around afterwards. I'd love to chat with you for a little more, you know? So. Sure, sure. Absolutely. So you talk all about, you've given tremendous advice today. What is your ultimate advice for someone, say, who's looking to go into comedy, say, for someone who's starting out with comedy but struggling a little bit, you know? What's your ultimate advice for them? Okay. I have two, two, two facets of advice. Number one, don't let anybody ever, no matter who it is, let, uh, let make you give up your dream. You know, if you have a dream, we all have a dream for a purpose. Maybe you're the one that's going to be the next big thing. Maybe you're not. People that are closest to us. I'm sorry, buddy. I think we seem to be, uh, I think we're having a little bit of a technical glitch. So could you repeat that real quick? I think. You there? I think we might have lost him. 
I think we wait one second. You there, buddy? Are you there? I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. I think we lost you there for a second. I shut it off. Ah, yeah, now that's better. Sorry, it was like breaking up and then all of a sudden it just went beep. Like, welcome to the internet. I don't know where I started. Okay, real fast. I don't know if you had to stop. Advice for young comedians don't let anybody take your dream away. Sometimes the closest people can be the biggest detractors. And number two, have an out plan, you know, a plan B. I know we all planned they were going to be big stars, but now this is the point where I, you know, I took a day job just because I wanted some stable income, and I'm glad I did because none of the other comedians I know are working right now. No money. Learn, learn how to invest. Learn how to save. Learn how to pay your taxes. Those are all things that have nothing to do with comedy, but they have everything to do with business. And this is show business. The show is important. The business is more important. And I didn't pay any attention to that. That was a huge mistake. So those are my advice for you. All righty. Thank you so much for coming on BuddyCast. We love having you. Absolutely. Like I said, stick around for a minute afterwards. But uh, yeah, but this has been another segment of BuddyCast with my new buddy, Doby Maxwell. Check him out whenever whenever this comedy scene gets picked back up. He's a great comedian. And check out what is called the the Maxwell Method of Stand-Up Comedy on Facebook. He's got great tips, great advice. I'll even write that down for you guys real quick. The Maxwell Method of Stand-Up Comedy. There we go. Maxwell Method Stand-Up Comedy on Facebook. Again, that was Dobie Maxwell. Thank you again, sir, so much for coming on the show. Thank you, buddy. Good luck. Let me drive your limo when you get famous. That's all I ask. Will absolutely do. I absolutely do. For all my buddies out there, we'll see you next time. All righty.